Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Locked in Science for another week of being locked into our houses. We are coming to you from our individual residences. My name is Claire and this week on uh, Locked in Science, well, we have Stu and Chris who will be presenting two stories for us. And Stu, you've got a, a guest. Yeah, so... I was reading about some studies that have been done in into the effect of uh, logging on certain types of forest in Australia. And specifically, you probably remember a couple of years ago, there were some pretty bad fires in Tasmania and yeah. um, followed up again by more fires um, in the recent bushfire season as well. And there was a lot of talk about them being... Um, forests that people hadn't historically known to be the type of forest that had bushfires going through them. Um, so I got in touch with uh, Dr. Jennifer Sanger from the University of Tasmania, who has just been working on some research into the effect of logging on the frequency and intensity of bushfires in particular types of forest in Tasmania. So she'll be able to explain um, what effect those activities have on, you know, why do, why these forests may have actually uh, burnt in recent years where they haven't historically been a really major bushfire risk. Well, I can't wait to hear from Jennifer about that one. Uh, Chris, what do you have for us this week? Well... This week I am talking about a, a subject that's been on my mind a lot lately. It's to do with a little um, isolation project that oh, that yeah. underway. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh yeah. Um, I mean, I think you talked about this last week. Um, your sourdough or your um, no, no. your homebrew, was it, I think? It is no? kind of growing something. Uh-huh. Um, um, look, Different look, kind of got... homebrew, is that what you're saying, Chris? <laughs> it, is, it is a kind of homebrew. Yeah, you guys already know this, but our listeners obviously don't. My partner Kaylee and I are expecting twins this year. Uh, very at the exciting. End of September. Yes, it is extremely exciting. Instant and siblings. Instant siblings, yeah. It turns out there was a lot to know. Who would have thought? Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I mean, they have that weird bond for the rest of their life as well. I hope you're going to delve into the deep, dark, scientific, peer-reviewed journals and Dig up what you can about psychic connection between twins. Uh, look, maybe <laughs> in a future episode, Claire. Um, All right, I am requesting that for a future yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. Look, but no, there is a lot you of can start keeping it. start keeping your own records about it. Mm, and, and yes, published the definitive paper on psychic yeah. connections between yeah. twins. Yeah, would that be I, n equals one or n equals two? Look, honestly, <laughs> um, I have seen there has been some research on this that kind of topic. Um, I have seen some research. I don't have it at my fingertips at the moment. So perhaps I will be able to look it up for a future episode. Uh, I'm not going to completely... I obviously, I'm not going to go psychic bond, but yeah, the whole <laughs> idea that yeah, that, that there is this kind of 
the spooky connection. But anyway, it could be quantum. Who knows? Um, <laughs> it's not quantum, okay? Um, but anyway, look, there is a lot of science involved with twins. And so I thought I'd share it. I'm going to be one of those boring parents to be. But it is an interesting topic. You know, looking at things like the basics today, like how twins happen. What are twins? What are the different types of twins? Um, and there's actually been some new research on why there are twins. How timely is that? That is very timely. That is very timely. And this isn't just your own research. No, it's not just my own research. (laughs) Great. Well, I cannot wait to hear about twins. It's going to be double the trouble here on Locked in Science. So on with the show. Okay, as I said in the introduction, my partner Kaylee and I are to be blessed, shall we say, with some impending twins. Impending? Impending? Ha- twins? No. Oh, um, um. En- encroaching? <laughs> that sounds worse. Yeah. You just Bundles stick with hashtag joy. blessed. Bundles of joy. Yeah, we are to be hashtag blessed with twins. Yes. Uh, <laughs> now, there is a lot that we have still to learn um, so far, I've just heard it's very difficult, but worth it is the is the message. Um, but I've learned a bit so far uh, about some of the, the science and things involved with uh, twins. So I thought I'd cover some of the basics. Um, one of the things that we found is that there is not a lot about twin pregnancies in the various pregnancy books. So, you know, maybe there's a bit of a gap in the, yeah. the public kind of awareness. So I'm going to... Um, I'm I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but the actual incidents, what, what is, how common is it? I tried to look up some figures on this. Now for Australia, the latest stats on multiple births uh, were from 2017 and it was about 15 in every thousand births. Okay. So 1.5%. Right. And of those about, I think three in a thousand roughly is identical. And so of the, the, of the 15, three of them are identical and the remaining 12 then roughly are uh, fraternal. Although there'll be a few like triplets and other things thrown in there as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, look, now the first question people obviously ask with this kind of thing is, are they identical or fraternal twins? It seems to be the main question that people want to know. Yeah, of course. Yes. One thing before I, I talk about this, because, you know, we have an idea with our own with our own pregnancy. But one thing that's important to say here is that we did become pregnant through IVF. Uh, now, Kaylee and I have talked about this, whether to be open about this uh, in conversation. And the very fact that we had to have that talk kind of indicates that there's a bit of stigma around this, this mm. thing. So, yeah, we think it's good to break down that a little bit. Um, and, yeah, we learned a lot about IVF and the statistics and all that kind of behind that in the process too. So that's something that... I might talk about in future episodes as well because you know a lot of people are doing it these days especially people who like us are a, a little bit older um now claire i believe you discussed in the program before that fertility declines with age You've, yeah uh conducted an interview last year i believe on that yeah topic. yeah with um dr kiri bilby mm. came in and had a chat to us about how fertility decreased with age as, as women get older yeah look it was really interesting i guess then to be on the kind of the other side of of that sort of thing and see the actual the way mm. that works firsthand. So yeah, I think yeah. that's probably worth worth sharing, maybe in a future episode. But yeah. for the moment, let's talk about twins. Absolutely. Um, now we're pretty certain that these ones are identical because there was one embryo transferred. 
Oh, wow. Yes. So the question you could ask is, how does that have, how can one embryo then turn into two? So, okay. So you know that identical twins, they're also known as monozygotic twins, happen where there's the zygote, which is the, um, yeah, the fertilized egg that splits into two. And so the twins then share the same DNA. Whereas your fraternal twins or dizygotic twins, they're a separate egg, separate sperm. And so genetically, they're no more alike than any two siblings. Yeah, they just have the same birthday. Yeah, and right. hung out together for an extra nine months. Exactly. Um, there can also be semi-identical twins. I should point this out. Wow, um, really? Which is where you have, yes, two sperm fertilize one egg. It is extremely rare, though. There are only two known cases. One of these cases, sets of twins, is in Brisbane in Australia. It's a fairly recent one. But, yeah, it's pretty rare. How do they... Oh, I've got so many questions. You, you're going to be doing follow-up oh, um, stories follow-up. about this for the rest of the year. Yeah. But look, I'll start with the identical twins. So they are they are less common, as I said before. They're, it's about three in 1,000 births. And no one really knows why uh, why it happens, why the, the fertilized egg splits. Um, it doesn't seem to be an inherited trait. It doesn't like run in families, um, unlike fraternal twins, which do seem to run in families. Um, they do seem to be more common in uh, when you have things like IVF. And this is possibly due to, I guess, interference, I suppose you could say, with the, the growing embryo. So the fact that it's grown it, for a few days to about five or six days in the laboratory, um, it's sometimes frozen and then thawed, and there's other sort of procedures that undergo that perhaps interferes with it in some way. Um, the mechanism is still not exactly known, but yes, yeah, clearly there is a lot more going on than there is um, when it's just inside the uterus. Chris, is there is there some sort of like limit to when that split happens? Well, you can get different things happening depending on, on when they split. And I don't really know exactly when when this can happen. So like I said, in our case, it was one embryo transferred, but you couldn't see that it was whether it had split or not. But the way mm. that they are, the twins are at the moment, is they must have split, must have happened fairly early on in the whole process. Because the twins each have their own placenta, they have their own amniotic sac, which means they developed quite separately. So, look, it can happen a bit later. As it happens later, you get more problems occurring. You get, you know, um, riskier pregnancies when they share a placenta. Um, you can get conjoined twins, that mm. sort of thing. So, you look, I'm not sure what the exact limit is, but yeah, the later it happens, the, the more likely you are to get issues. Hmm. Another curious thing about identical twins, which you may have noticed if you've known any identical twins, is that they're not perfectly identical. Like, yeah, yeah. they're very similar, but, you know, obviously there's going to be some things like, uh, like the environment where they're grown in the uterus is going to be slightly different. Yeah, I um, mean, one, one's got a fringe and one doesn't, right? Exactly. <laughs> they, they're sometimes allowed to wear different clothes. Not often, no. Not so, often. Same pattern, Nothing's... different colour. Yeah. That's right. But no, okay, so one of the things we know, though, is like when a cell splits, you can get, you know, the, the DNA is copied, right? But there can be mutations, there are errors in the copying. And so um, there's been some calculations done, and I reckon with identical twins, it could be as as much many differences as one, one different DNA sequence in every 12 million nucleotides, which doesn't sound like much, but across the whole genome adds up to um, a few hundred differences, I reckon. 
So, you know, there are going to be some genetic differences. They don't have exactly the same DNA. And then, of course, you have epigenetics, which is uh, the, kind of the, the changes that lays on top of the DNA and causes uh, some genes to be switched on and off. And that can lead to fairly large differences. And that's driven by environmental factors, things that might not be present in both twins, yes. right? Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, and look, it's it, it, this this process. It's a it's a necessary part. You know, our genes are always being switched on and off all the time, and so that can happen differently in the two individuals. And yeah, and there can be other things. Um, there is a phenomenon where if the twins do share a placenta, where one can get more blood supply than the other one, and can end up much larger than the other one, which could explain the uh, the Danny DeVito Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> situation a little bit, Stu. <laughs> It has bothered me since the film came out, so I, I was just concerned that they got it factually correct in the in the movie. But look, um, identical twins are fascinating. They're a seemingly random occurrence, but fraternal twins are also fascinating because they don't seem to be as random. For one thing, fraternal twins, they're more common with older mothers. Um, and as I said before, they're, it seemed to be inherited. They're running families. So there's some mm. sort of mechanism going on there. Some perhaps evolutionary selection has caused this to happen, which seems a bit counterproductive because humans are kind of built to only have one baby at a time. Twin pregnancies are much riskier. So, yeah, this has uh, been a bit of a puzzle, but there has been a new study actually just published a couple of weeks ago, it was led by Joseph Tompkins for the University of Western Australia. It was published in the journal Nature, Ecology and Evolution. And they have shed some light on what is going on here. Turns out it's fairly straightforward. So basically they did some mathematical modelling to see what would be the optimum process here. Does this make sense from an evolutionary point of view? Um, and they took into account the fact that fertility declines with age, as we discussed. So they found that you can increase your chances of having a successful pregnancy if instead of releasing one egg at a time, you release two at a time. Yeah. Um, so you basically get two goes at it. And the assumption double, is... Two double, bites of the cherry. Double the trouble. <laughs> double the trouble. Double ovulation, as, as you can say. And then the assumption is that, you know, hopefully one of those eggs will, will survive. Now, this kind of makes more sense as the, as the mother gets older, as the eggs are a bit older. So it's kind of thing that you need to switch over to double ovulation as you get a bit older. So, so yeah, the, the assumption is there, like I said, the one egg will survive, but the, the downside to that is sometimes you will get twins when you only intended to have one. But overall, um, statistically it will pay off if you're increasing your chances by having the, the double ovulation. That makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. So it's a new twin science right there. But yeah, look, the, um, when we asked about this, when we spoke to uh, obstetricians about this, you know, it turns out they don't really care too much whether they are identical or fraternal. The main thing is, is the pregnancy dangerous or not? As I said, with ours, we know they share, uh, so they don't share a placenta, they have, they're completely separate. So wow. that is actually a safer kind of pregnancy. That's called um, a dichorionic, diamniotic pregnancy. So dichorionic means two placentas, diamniotic means two amniotic sacs. So, yes. Right, so crossed. you have to say both those words. Yeah, I think, I think if you're diamniotic, you'd have to be dichorionic. I don't know how you could be in two separate sacs and share the same placenta. I'm not sure whether that's possible or not. Right. But certainly, yeah. It's when I first saw the abbreviation DCDA, I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> so, but yeah, I've since learned that. I'm not sure if I would know what it meant now. Yes. Yeah. Well, now you know... 
Now I know. Uh, now, now I know. know. It sounds like it sounds like some sort of hardcore band from the eighties. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe it's the hardcore band that um, Chris's future children are going to start. That's quite possible. Um, they will be the performing superstars of what, 2040? Or maybe teenage Love stars, it. maybe 2035 yeah, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> anyway, so there's still a lot more to learn, a lot more for me to share. And so, yeah, look out for me boring you with future episodes. You might remember a few months ago, if you can remember back that far, there were some other things going on in the world, including um, some pretty major bushfires in large parts of the country, which, um, you know, the aftermath of which is still being felt everywhere uh, that they were affected. But uh, we sort of have lost a bit of that out of the news cycle. But um, I have with me on Lost in Science, this week, um, Dr. Jen Sanger from the University of Tasmania, who is a bushfire researcher and, well, general ecological researcher, I guess. Um, thanks for joining us, Jen. Thanks for having me. So your, what's, what is your background? What, what sort of led you to bushfire research? Uh, well, so I'm a forest ecologist, so I study a lot of things, different things to do with uh, forests and um, this is actually my first study looking at the effect of bushfires but I have been looking at um, different forest types um, for the last couple of years Um, yeah and yeah and we've just had some the year before last so um, January 19 the summer before last we had some pretty severe bushfires down here in Tasmania and it burnt some quite large areas across the state uh, one of the areas that was the worst affected was a place called the Huon Valley, uh, which is down south of Hobart. Now, this area, there's a lot of uh, forestry operations going on in this area. So in, in the region, you have a kind of a patchwork of, of logged areas and then older growth forests and also plantations as well. After the fires, when we had a look at the satellite imagery, they'd there seemed to be a pattern where the areas that had been logged seemed to be burnt a lot more than the old growth forests. So we decided to do an official study to look at this phenomenon to see uh, what we could find. Had anyone done work on that sort of thing previously to your work? There'd been some studies uh, from the mainland. So there'd been one from uh, Victoria where they looked it to see uh, after the Black Saturday fires and uh, they found that in the forest there, uh, the, um, the fires had actually burnt a lot more severely in forests that had been recently logged. So from about uh, the age of about seven to about like 30, uh, 39 years, I think, um, these forests in that age actually burnt a lot more severely than older growth forests. Yeah, and there are obviously there are different types of forest within 
Australia and Australia is a very big place. Were they similar types of forests that they'd found on the mainland that you have in Tasmania as well? Yeah, so we both have uh, very similar forests, um, wet eucalypt forests, so that can have a number of species, but both Tasmania and uh, Victoria have a species of eucalypt uh, called Eucalyptus regnans. So that's called the mountain ash in Victoria and it's called the swamp gum in Tasmania. And yeah, they're, they're two of the main forest types um, that are logged in both Victoria and Tasmania. And so um, when you when you went to look at these forests in Tasmania, you found similar things to what they had found in other places as well? Yeah, so our, our study found that logging regrowth and also plantations burn at a higher severity than the old growth forests. There was some fires in other parts of Tasmania earlier on, a couple of years earlier, in areas where people were saying they hadn't seen bushfires before is that sort of coming up in other areas that there are parts of Tasmania burning that don't don't usually burn under climate change our summers are getting a lot drier and that's something to predict, that's predicted to keep increasing in the future so what we're seeing is that there's areas of the bush uh, that are, that are a lot more dry than usual in the summertime and what we've also we've been seeing is um, we've been having a lot more dry lightning storms so typically lightning dry lightning storms or lightning in general in Tasmania is quite a rare thing but with climate change we're actually seeing a lot more lightning which is starting uh, fires in some really remote areas of Tasmania. So uh, I think it was back in 2016, we had some fires up in the Alpine area, um, which burnt some really significant trees. Um, So some very old um, pencil pines um, got destroyed. Some of these trees could be um, over 2000 years old. And there was a lot of really sensitive Alpine vegetation that got damaged as well. And I guess if they're in, uh, you know, if they're they're in remote areas, it's not like anyone can get in to to fight those sort of fires either. Yeah, so it makes it a real challenge uh, when we have these fires happening in such remote places. Uh, our parks and wildlife team are actually really exceptionally well trained in this, and um, they've have done some really great work to help, um, especially in the January fires in two thousand and nineteen. They did a lot of work to keep. Um, these fires out of some really sensitive areas but yeah it does it does present a very big challenge and so hopefully we'll can we can see more resources being put into getting proper firefighting equipment and getting some helicopters down here in Tasmania. Would be uh be pretty handy especially for yeah some of the some of the areas that um I've I've driven through some parts of Tasmania and I can't see how else you'd get in there to be honest but um back to the uh to the growth that you were looking at and, and uh, in the Huon Valley. It's only early days yet because we're only in May, but um, are you going back to look at the regeneration of those areas to see if the, the fire intensity is um, causing issues with the regeneration of those areas that have been burnt as well? Look, it's a very good question and it's something that, um, that I hope someone will be looking at um, for sure. So I, I feel like the forest will be re- okay. Um, our forests are, are fairly well adapted to fire, um, infrequent fire, mind you, um, but I, I feel like they'll um, have a chance to survive. The thing that we really need to worry about is repeated fire. So uh, these, these wet eucalypt forests that we have probably only see fire maybe, I don't know, 200 to 300 years 
intervals. So um, what we're actually seeing in Victoria, um, in the central highlands and around Gippsland, is that they're actually getting fires there and or really big fires, what they class as mega fires. They're getting uh, fires like that um, sometimes every 20 years, or sometimes even more frequently than that. And so what's happening there is these uh, eucalypt trees don't really get a chance to grow up and get to an age where um, they can set seed again before another fire goes through. So a lot of these fires will actually kill some of these species. So mountain ash and the swamp gum, uh, which I mentioned before, um, that actually gets killed by fire. And so uh, when a fire goes through, there needs to be enough time for that tree to grow up and mature and set seed um, before um, another fire goes through. So. Otherwise, it'll just completely disappear from the ecosystem. So really what, what will happen is if there's an increasing frequency of the fires, you may get a change in the makeup of the, of the forest that's actually there over time. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what they're finding in Victoria. Oh, well, that's, that's an obvious concern um, to take into account. And um, I guess this kind of research does bring into question whether logging is actually an economically uh, viable uh, industry in, in certainly in some places, if it's going to cause uh, issues for the, for the ecosystems that it relies on for its, um, you know, for its basis. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Jen. Um, it was really good to catch up with you and hear about uh, some of the research you're doing and it is an important issue and uh, nice to, well, you know, uh, makes it makes a nice change to be talking about something else uh, for a change on the show. But um, obviously, environmental science is very important to us. So thanks for uh, telling us about what you've been up to. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. A big thank you to our guest this week, Dr. Jennifer Sanger, and also a big shout out, congratulations to Chris and Kaylee on their bundles of joy coming to us um, in September. Woohoo, woohoo. Locked in Science is normally uh, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but at the moment is being produced in our houses on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Lost in Science is produced with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Please get in touch with us. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. 
Uh, we're also on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week and we're all going to be here when Stu, Chris and Claire get locked, locked in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.